0: Well, this morning we are looking at the Gospel of Luke and his account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, also with an eye towards uh, the other Gospel accounts too, in particular John's account. So we begin this morning, Luke 24. I'm going to start with verse 1, go through about verse 12, then jump ahead to verse 36. Let me read for us. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. They remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now jump ahead to verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And ate before them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to Him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this Easter morning and how we celebrate what happened some 2,000 years ago. Lord Jesus Christ, you are ruling. You were raised from the dead. You are even here amongst us now as you have promised through your Spirit. So we pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, that this word would be good for us, that it would penetrate deep within us, whether we feel it or not, and that it would move us to love you, to respond to you, and to walk in your ways. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we get to Luke 24 and the text at hand, it's, I think it's important to define what the Bible means by resurrection because it is often either misunderstood or perhaps worse, it's devalued by some Christians. And that's a serious problem because as the Bible teaches it, resurrection is fundamental. It is fundamental to being a Christian. It's fundamental to our our present life as we are living it right now, our our future, and and why we can endure and, and have hope in this life though we face tragedy and suffering and sin and all the various things that are hard in this life. Well, to begin, resurrection is not resuscitation. It's not CPR. It's not that Jesus was, as Monty Python maybe would put it, mostly dead, not having a pulse for a few minutes or, or something like that, but just happened to survive the ordeal and snuck off. No, by by all ancient accounts crucifixion was so traumatic that even those who were put on crosses for just a little while a couple of hours still die it was horrific one of the worst punishments ever devised to put a person through well resurrection is also not like being a zombie i've heard some young people kind of refer to it uh that way so jesus was not the walking dead so in, just think about it. In one sense, in what sense would it be good to be a zombie? I mean, how, what, how is that kind of life any better than death? And who would want that sort of thing? Resurrection is also not life as a disembodied spirit. So Jesus did not become an angel or a ghost. I've, I've heard Christians say that, and that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the early church says that's a heresy. That is a denial of the gospel. And that's actually what various religions think life after death is. And you can see that in popular culture everywhere. It's like a bodiless soul in an immaterial heaven where it's strangely exactly like you always wanted earth to be. But that's not what the Bible teaches. If you had asked Jewish people in Jesus's day about the resurrection people would have told you that they expected to be raised from the dead to human life on this planet, and they expected to know people like Abraham and Moses bodily in the flesh, people who had long since died and decomposed into dust. So our hope, as the Bible teaches it, is resurrection. It's resurrection. Even so... This question always comes up when I teach this. Even so, when someone who belongs to Jesus dies now, that person is immediately taken into the presence of God and is awaiting the resurrection. So heaven, as a lot of people talk about it, heaven is not the end of our story. That's not what the Bible teaches. Resurrection is the end of the story. So Moses like all the Christians who've died before us, who we've known, well, Moses is very much alive right now, enjoying God's presence, but he's waiting on the resurrection. That's his hope, and that should be our hope too. Well, that takes us to Luke. Luke 24 begins with Mary and Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Joanna, excuse me, going to the tomb to preserve Jesus's body. And they're going for two reasons. First, they, they initially had been, been unable to preserve his body because of the Passover and the laws on uncleanness and so forth. So Jewish laws there. But second, they were going because they thought Jesus was dead. That's why they were going to the tomb. They were not expecting him to be alive despite his teaching that he would be raised on the third day. And in John's account, when, when Mary Magdalene saw the empty tomb, she didn't assume resurrection at all. She assumed someone had stolen his body. It's not until she sees him, hears his voice, and reaches out to touch him, and these are all sensible, tangible things that she believes. The disciples in Luke 24 have a similar experience as the women, who, by the way, they were also his followers and rightly his disciples, though they were not 12. Uh, when, when the women tell the remaining 11 disciples that they've seen Jesus, they dismiss them out of hand. Though Peter and John uh, do go look at the tomb. So on the third day, this is the scene here, on the third day, the 11 were nowhere near the tomb. Even as these women had gone uh, to go and try and preserve the body, these men were nowhere near the tomb. And John tells us that they were locked in a room for fear of the Jews because more than likely they feared as his disciples they might be crucified too, which would have been the typical Roman practice. Luke tells us that when Jesus first appeared to them, They thought he was a spirit, or as we would say, a ghost, right? They thought they were being haunted, or they thought they were having a paranormal experience. And in response, Jesus invites them to look at him and touch him. Why? Because a spirit does not have a body. And again, this is a sensible, tangible human interaction with a physical being. Later, he would invite Thomas famously, Thomas, who was so much like our modern scientific mindset that cannot believe without so-called empirical proof, Jesus invited him to stick his finger where the nails had pierced him. And if that's not enough, Jesus then, after appearing to them and and saying these words to them, uh, he says, hey, I'm a little bit hungry here. Do you happen to have anything To eat, and they give him a broiled fish. And so that that simple, you know, ho-hum broiled fish showed just how thoroughly human Jesus was and he still is today. So when Jesus talks about enjoying the Lord's Supper, for example, with his people in eternity, that's not he's not being figurative. He will actually eat and drink. With us because he is both fully God and fully man. And that's the scandal of the incarnation. The one through whom and for whom all things were made took on flesh for us and our salvation and has chosen to remain a human for eternity in order to dwell with us as we are. That's how much our God loves humanity. And I think the disciples' reaction to encountering the resurrected Jesus helps bring uh, home just how crazy this is. Just how mind blowing all this is. You know, first century people, just like us, or really probably more than us, because they encountered the dead far more frequently than we do. I mean, we tend to cordon off sickness and death and all that. They did not. It was in their homes. They knew that dead is dead. And you don't come back from dead. There's no such thing as being a little bit dead or mostly dead. They had seen him tortured and crucified. They knew the place where he was buried. And no one in the gospel accounts acted as if this was like, oh, how about that? or as if it was was no big deal, or as if they expected any of this to happen. No, they doubted, they disbelieved, and even called Jesus' resurrection into question when he was standing right in front of them. Jesus had to bodily show them the truth and had to remind them of what he had taught them before he ever entered Jerusalem in that holy week. And it shows just how hard it was for them to believe all of this. I mean, none of them had any confidence that Jesus would actually be resurrected, none of them. Even as they had witnessed him raise people from the dead. But once they see him, once they touch him, once they eat with him, they have no more doubts and they rightly worship him as God, and that's important. You know, it's not difficult to believe that Jesus was a real historical human man. He's one of the most attested people of human history. Let me say that again. He's one of the most attested people of human history and we have more evidence for his life and his crucifixion than any other figure of ancient history. Anyone who tells you otherwise is simply ignorant of ancient history, or perhaps more so as the young people might say today, they're just clowning you, right? They're, they're, they're being intellectually obtuse on purpose. The question that really matters is not whether he was a real guy, but whether or not he was raised from the dead. That's the issue. Everything that the Bible claims hangs on that. So if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then he's no better or worse than any other notable ancient teacher or guru. But he, but he certainly, he is not worth worshiping whatsoever. You can learn from him, but we would not worship him. Paul says that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then there is no life after death, and all of this is foolishness. As Paul says, if there is no resurrection then we are the biggest idiots the world has ever known. We are the ones who are clowning. All of this we're doing right now, clowning. But if he was raised from the dead, it's all true. Every last bit of it, it's true. That means then that there is real hope. This life is not all there is. Your best days are not behind you. They've yet to come. It's why Thomas can't help but respond with worship when he sees Jesus. And if the resurrection is true, what that means then is that the world radically changed on that Sunday morning. There are details in the accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection that are, they're often overlooked because they're strange. Uh, to our, some of our modern sensibilities and casual readers sometimes just miss because of that, the depth of what the gospel writers are saying in their accounts about what happened at the resurrection, really the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, for example, in Matthew's account of Jesus' death, we learn that the sun was darkened before he died, and at the moment of his death, there was an earthquake and rocks split open. So think of it this way. At Christ's birth, There was brightness at midnight, with the heavens lit up, with angels and stars announcing his arrival. The light was shining in the darkness. At Christ's death, there was darkness at noon. The light had left the world. And we read that at his death, people were raised from the dead. Their tombs were emptied, and they were seen in Jerusalem by people. The curtain of the temple separating the people of God from the sanctuary was ripped in half from top to bottom. Jesus uh, was raised from the dead on the morning of the first day of the week. That's not random. It wasn't a Tuesday. It was the first day of the week. There was another earthquake at that time, and there was an angel who descended from heaven and rolled back the stone. Now, in other gospel accounts, we learn that there were actually Two angels, not just one. Matthew's account, I think, highlights the angel who spoke. So think of it this way. Uh, When you're reporting on an event and there's multiple people there, you probably are going to report on the person who was speaking and not report every single person who happened to be there. That's what Matthew was doing. And in John's account, when you read about those two angels, there's one sitting at where Jesus' head had been and another where his feet had been. We know that Jesus' tomb was in a garden and that Mary Magdalene actually mistook Jesus at first for its gardener. So you need to ask, why are these details there? What do these details mean? Well, in short, they're not random. They all point to the reality that with his death and resurrection, the kingdom of God has shown up in power and it's real. So with Matthew's account, he's showing how Jesus is teaching about the coming of the Son of Man in power. That's Matthew 24, part of the Olivet Discourse, if you know about that. He's saying, guess what? This is not way off. It happened. It happened. The last days of the present evil age had begun even as the new creation was emerging alongside it. Jesus is raised on the morning of the first day of the week. Why? Why? Like with Genesis 1, new creation had begun. Jesus' resurrection marks the first day of new creation. It's why we worship on Sundays. Our worship points both to Jesus' resurrection and to the reality of the new creation being in full swing on this planet right now. To put this in terms that that maybe would resonate with uh, evangelicals from the 1980s or so, you've been living in the last days your whole life, as did your ancestors, your whole life. And With John, what we see at the tomb, with all those strange details, is actually a picture. It's a type of the holy of holies with the angels flanking what is a symbolic Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbolic throne representing what's on view in God's throne room, like in Isaiah 6, if you know that, that picture. And what it is saying is, on earth as it is in heaven. So what should have been a place of death has become the throne of Jesus and the very place from which Jesus launched his kingdom into the world. Jesus takes what is dead and makes it alive. That's what redemption is. That's what resurrection is. And what's more, his tomb was located in a garden. And some scholars think it was on the Mount of Olives, the same geographic area that functioned as a symbolic Eden for Jesus, the same area from which he began his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and the same area where he endured the temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's also the same area where he ascended into heaven, fulfilling Daniel 7 and Zechariah 14. And so his disciples saw him as he said they would in Matthew 24, coming on the clouds of heaven. None of these things are random. Jesus was purposely being symbolic. So what we're supposed to see in the Gospels is not just a death and resurrection story, it's clearly that, and it's incredible. It's exactly rather what we've been studying in our evening uh, Sunday series. The hope of the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Jesus. What was that Old Testament hope? Let me run through it real quick. Adam's fall into sin in the Garden of Eden and its effects on the world would be undone. That happened in that garden where Jesus was raised from the dead. God would bring about the new creation. That began in that garden where he was raised from the dead. Sin and evil would be judged. That happened on his cross. God would triumph once and for all over his enemies. That happened on the cross. God's people would be vindicated. That happened on his cross and through his resurrection. The nations of the world would come to Jerusalem. That began at Pentecost. The Messiah would come that began at his birth. The long hoped for kingdom of God would be inaugurated and would start to cover the world that began at his resurrection and the dead would be raised. That happened at his death and his resurrection and throughout his ministry too. So, the New Testament claim is that all of these things have been fulfilled in Jesus, even as they are continuing into the present moment. And that's what these gospel accounts and all these strange, kind of weird details are telling us. So, how you understand Jesus' resurrection directly impacts your life right now and your hope for the future. So if you believe what Jesus and Paul teach about the resurrection, it means this life is not all there is. I try and say that as often as I can. I don't care if you're sick of it. Because so often living in the times we live in, we say this life is all there is. Thus we have bucket lists. This life is not all there is. And your suffering and your sin and your shame, it does not define you. No, Jesus defines you. We are not our own, but we belong to him in life and in death. And as D.A. Carson once put it, there's no amount of suffering, and all of us suffer in some form or fashion. There is no amount of suffering that resurrection can't fix. Your suffering and trials, your sin, your shame, all of it, it's real. And God is not merely with you in those things, though he is, and that's huge. He has promised they will not be the end of you. To believe in the resurrection means that we are both living in the last days of this present evil darkness, but also in the new creation at the exact same time. This means our lives, they will have tension. And that tension is often at war within our hearts and minds. Paul talks about that at length in the book of Romans. The temptation for American Christians, however, is to believe that it's only this present evil darkness that's at work. I've heard that my whole life. And that Christ, uh, he's ruling, but it's way off in heaven, but he's not ruling over what we have right now in his kingdom. It doesn't feel like it's really come because I don't think I can see it. That's why so many of us are cynical and pessimistic and believe that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and that the best Jesus can do is burn this place to the ground and let us escape it. But that's not what he teaches. That's a Jonah mindset, which doesn't really believe for God so loved the world. Or maybe it doesn't want God to love the world. Or worse, it's the mindset of a disciple who thinks Jesus is incapable of redeeming what he made, including humanity. As Anne Lamott famously said, we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. Think on that. We are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. Or again, as Eugene Peterson put it, we are a colony of heaven in the country of death. So, resurrection then does not mean that we should be like the Amish. You know, we we don't circle the wagons trying to keep the world from creeping into our homes because that's impossible. You can't escape your own heart. Nor do we think this world is not my home as if following Jesus is merely a spiritual thing and we're just trying to escape his creation. Because the resurrection ushered in the new creation, it's already here, but it's not yet here fully. Jesus calls us to be in the world, but not of it, straddling the two realities of the present evil age in the kingdom of God, which means most of your fighting, most of the war you will fight will never be seen because it's happening in your own mind and in your own heart. We are not our own, but belong body and soul to our Lord Jesus Christ in this world that he made. So, for example, when you look at the first Christian communities, they were nowhere near close to perfect. I mean, just go read First Corinthians; it's not utopia, not at all. They had serious sin. Even so, they lived with this this tension I'm talking about: present evil darkness, new creation, in their ordinary daily lives. So, even though they lived under real oppression, which was far worse political circumstances than than we do or endure far worse they lived they lived with hope and they proclaimed Jesus as king they tended to be outward looking people and weren't nearly so worried as we are about their security or their happiness or their well-being and they didn't do radical things they did simple things like taking care of their neighbors or loving their enemies they they planted crops and use their gifts and their talents to be productive in whatever ways they could. It's not rocket science. You don't have to save the world. Jesus has done that. It's not your calling. They like to do things like eat and drink together, like we did this past Wednesday night. And they both fasted and feasted as acts of worship in recognition of who they belong to and what time they lived in. They worked for justice in whatever ways they could, especially for widows and orphans. Some of them were literal slaves. Some of them were part of the highest classes of society, and they came together in one church. And they struggled to work past those cultural tensions. And you know what? It was hard. It was really hard. But still, they thought the fight was worth it. And what united them, what drove them, and the only reason they would choose to live like this, and nobody chooses to live like this, by the way, unless it's Jesus. If not for the resurrection, this way of life, again, is foolishness. It's clowning. If not for the resurrection, this way of life is foolishness. And yet they were convinced that the one who made the heavens and the earth, who proclaimed this world as good, who had redeemed them from their sins and ushered in the kingdom of God, the new creation, despite how it looks to the world, through the Messiah Jesus, that's how they lived. That was their conviction. That's got to be our conviction too. Jesus is ruling over this world right now. That's the gospel claim. That's the resurrection claim. Jesus has promised to redeem this world and to make all things new, which includes you. And that work, it's already begun. It's already begun. And Jesus has promised you life forever with him and he promises to redeem everything about you and to make you whole. All your hurts, all your wounds, all your embarrassments, all those things that you don't want to get out, that you would be horrified, if they were on TikTok or Twitter or whatever. He has promised to redeem. And he has already given you the down payment on that promise through the giving of the Holy Spirit. So because of Jesus, we are, on, we are an Easter people living in a Good Friday world, a colony of heaven and a country of death. That is who we are because of him. And it is, as he says to us in Revelation 118, one of the most... Beautiful verses, one of the most hopeful verses of the entire Bible. This is Jesus speaking. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So the one who was raised from the dead, he's for you and he assures you that you have life forever with him. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there is no God like you, a God so full of steadfast, loving kindness and faithfulness that showers his grace and his mercy and his love on countless generations. You've been doing it for the history of the world Thank you for this grace and this mercy that we have through Jesus, who is our King, our Lord, but not just ours, but over the whole world, whether they see it or not. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you for the hope of the life we have, both now and forevermore. And we pray all of these things through the Spirit who intercedes for us and works in us and sanctifies us. Amen.